Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to the second podcast of Alternative Talk. I'm your host, Sarah Rowe, or Selecta Sarah, and this is a special episode because it is dedicated to the month of February, Black History Month. But before I begin, order of business. So I like to make clear that is every two weeks on the Tuesday, I will be uploading a new podcast. So remember to check in then or look on my Instagram for any updates for posting. Now, let's get into it. The song chosen for this week's podcast is Picket Fences by Miles Cameron. The song's introduction has a synthetic pop tune which changes into heartfelt, moody monophonic. With the fusion of R&B and pop, Miles Cameron delivers his soulful experience of living as a black kid in a suburban setting. His performance is layered with vocal effects that shows the listeners his worries, scars, and his hopes. When I had first heard the song, I felt guided by the intro because I knew I was in for a story. His opening lyrics tells us the theme of his overall song, an exploration of his own self-identity. And when I recognized that, I thought it would make a great podcast song. Now, a little more on the artist. Miles Cameron is a 21-year-old artist from New York currently attending Yale University. I did a LinkedIn search on him and I discovered that he developed a supplementary curriculum tailored to students' development in areas of writing and mathematics. So we are dealing with a very, very smart black man here. In early high school, he decided that he wanted to begin writing his own music. It was close to when Frank Ocean first released his own album. He was inspired by Frank's ability to tell his story through music. And I suggest that whoever's listening to this podcast, go and follow him at Miles Cam, M-Y-L-E-S-C-A-M on Instagram right now. The song is titled White Picket Fences, and I wanted to focus on the meaning of a white picket fence, decoratively used as a domestic boundaries, but figuratively used as a symbol to the American dream or Canadian dream or insert Western country dream. So I searched up on Urban Dictionary the definition of American Dream, and trust me, it is a very, very lengthy and very detailed. It states, the ideal American life as fed by the media, 2.3 children, white picket fences surrounded by split level house with a dog and a cat and a station wagon or a minivan to take the kids to sport practice impossible by nature. And these neighborhoods or cities where it appears that the residents have achieved the American Dream. From Miles Cameron's experience as an African American living in the suburbs where residents have achieved the American dream and a system where it promotes the success of one race, and to live in a space where this is evident, one can feel automatically outcasted. And I'm not saying that. In this setting, you won't see other races, but predominantly 
in a system where it doesn't advocate for any other ways, you will see a um, an unbalanced of the factors that contribute to such divide include racial steering. It is a practice of real estate agents directing African-Americans to communities that have more African-Americans, keeping that they stay here and the white people stay in a different area. Only after federal, state, and local governments intervened in the integration of African-Americans to suburban cities, there was no acceptance. And one might feel awkward and they don't want to live in a space where they're not going to feel accepted and comfortable living in. You are very aware without the enforcement of the government, you would not be welcomed with open arms from the people living in that neighborhood. That is enough to turn anyone away from living somewhere, somewhere you're going to spend the rest of your life. There are lending institutions discriminating by creating unfair criteria and accepting restrictive lending covenants. So one is now unable to take out a loan to even afford to live in that area. Plus, we have white flight, which is basically a white person feeling uncomfortable with a black person moving into their neighborhood. And so they then move out. They fly away like geese in the wintertime to go to Florida in the summer. Packs of them gone in the wind. Bye-bye. When my grandmother on my mother's side first came to Canada from Jamaica, it was very hard for her to find a place to live. Everywhere she would go, real estate agents would deny her of a house or would say that they have nothing to offer her. So she decided to ask a friend, a white friend, to help her find a house. And she recognized that these same real estate agents that would say, we don't have this here or we don't have anything to offer you. When her white friend would ask, all of a sudden, there was a house. Hmm. I also spoke to my mom about her personal experience of looking for a home in Brampton as a Canadian Black woman in a more modern age. She noted and recognized if it wasn't for her profession, she believes that she wouldn't be taken seriously or she wouldn't be offered any... um, of the nice houses that we were able to live in as children. When you see all the forces working against Black people into moving into predominantly white suburban areas or suburban areas in general, you understand why there's a lack of Black people living there. With the integration of Black families moving to predominantly white neighborhoods or to locations with um, lots of suburban Black communities where they have uh, a strong connection, there is a divide. For a long time, there has been a certain perception of what it is to be Black. When my mother was younger, people used to make fun of her because they thought she was acting above them and she was looking down upon them. Even when I was 
in elementary school and middle school, people would say, oh, you're talking white or you're an Oreo or you don't act very black, do you? This shift from urban to suburban socially creates a barrier in the full scope of people's perspectives and what it is to be black. And that exactly relates to what Miles Cameron says. And it's a suburban black boy. Check me out. Stay in the books, but I got style. T-shirt from that thrift shop. And my Jordan's B had me down. It's a new brand of blackness, but I own that. Beep. I'm not saying it because my mother obviously listens to this podcast. Now, how does African Heritage Month or Black History Month have to do with self-identity? This month is a celebration and continuation of Black or African history. The theme of continuity of African-American identity development is situated with young African-Americans or Canadian Africans progression of appreciating the culture and themselves through learning about black history so it is very important in the development of self-identity a study conducted by Quentin L. Stubbins found that participants after watching Roots the saga of an American family chronologically the history of an African man sold to slavery in America and with his descendants, starring very popular actors such as Forrest Whitaker, Lawrence Fishburne, and Malachi Kirby. Continuing with the study, students found themselves undereducated when it came to education institutions teaching African American history. The same prominent figures are used. I am sure you can relate to that point. There is a desire to know about others who are less popular that have contributed to the cause and are still contributing. When one is equipped with the knowledge of their history or legacy of their race, it helps with the understanding of their self-identity. Self-identification is a hybrid of personal, may be used to refer to the result of identification by self from yourself, so no no other interference from outside sources, and social, may be used to refer to the outcome of an identification of self by other. So this is outside influencing how you think of yourself. Altogether, it sums up into the individual self as reflexively understood by the individual in terms of his slash her life history. By being exposed to this positive imagery of people that represents your culture, produced by people that may be the opposite race of you, it changes the social discourse of what it is to be Black. Just like the variation of skin tone we all have, the same is with our personalities and who we are. Now we see a shift. We shift from seeing stereotypical, one-dimensional Black characters and we move into the array 
and the beauty of us all. According to Francoise Bailey's A Caribbean Canadian Descent, she quotes, For some, racial identity is a fairly stable aspect of an individual's personality. For others, it is a developmental, sorry, process influenced by environmental and personal factors. Identity isn't constructed privately because there are forces that are outside of a person's um, influence. Such influences are always changing and they include societal norms or what is seen as normal, popular, and what we agree on together to be okay for society. Nobody wants to be the person to go outside of this. Why? It's because you receive insults, rejection, and that's not a comfortable place for anyone of any race. It may be consciously or unconsciously done, but one will subject themselves to change, to fit into the norms, to to feel normal. And to be black is more than a culture or color or what's popular at the moment. It's a transnational lifestyle. For example, Toronto slang is a combination of urban Western talk with Caribbean, Patwa, or certain dialects combined together. One may categorize as Caribbean and more urban Western Black as two different entities and never would have saw that able or being able to live in a hub where they can interact with each other creates a new offspring on identity and Black identity. Of getting to know yourself and understanding your history, your legacy. Let's talk about our history and let's talk about our legacy. So just like all my old church assignments, we are going to do a quick history lesson on Canadian Black figures. The first one I will have the pleasure of talking about is the Honorable Lincoln M. Alexander. He was born in 1922 in Toronto, D-Dot. He served with the Royal Canadian Air Force during the Second World War between 1942 and 1945. He was educated at Hamilton's McMaster University, where he got McMaster, where he graduated in arts and Toronto Osgood Hall School of Law, where he passed the bar examination in 1965. In, eight, in 1985, Lincoln Alexander was appointed Ontario's 24th Lieutenant Governor, the first member of a visible minority to serve as the Queen's representative in Canada. Yes. Mary Ann Shad Carey, born free in Delaware, Mary Ann Shad became the first Black woman to publish a newspaper in North America when she established the Provincial Freeman. She was a teacher who established a racially integrated school for Black children in in Windsor, in addition to writing educational pamphlets promoting settlement in Canada, including a plea for immigration or notes of Canada West, which was written in 1852. Lawrence Larry McLarty is the first Black police officer in Toronto. Larry McLarty came to Canada with an experience as a Jamaican constabulary force officer, excuse me, but after arriving in Toronto, he worked various jobs as a railway porter, a catalog bookpacker, a night cleaner, and in a hospital kitchen. When McLarty applied to Toronto Police Service, he was disappointed to be told that he was one-eighth of an inch too short. Then two months later, while being measured for a new suit, 
he discovered that he met the height requirement after all. And he replied to the force and was hired in 1960, making him the first black officer in Toronto. 32 years later, he is now in the rank of the detective sergeant. Last but certainly not least, there is Mary Ann Shad Carey. Born free in Delaware, Mary Ann Shad became the first black woman to publish a newspaper in North America when she established the Provincial Freeman. She was also a teacher and established a racial integrated school for black children in Windsor. And I just want to add that all races can have the opportunity to learn from their history and be proud of it and to and for it to be celebrated. I think what is important that we have the space to do so freely without judgment or thinking that we're putting one race down because we want to uplift ourselves. And don't feel guilty from learning about information about what have or what has happened in the past. You can learn from it and apply to society now in ways that could help it. Because no matter where I go, I cannot deny my blackness. It grows with me. It's subjected to the world and my thoughts that surround me. It has a past and a future of its own, but it has my own personal life experiences that make it glow. It has that black girl magic. Don't forget the Jamaican side too. There's times where it looks to heaven to find God and there's a touch of Branton that is undeniable to it. Yay. There's a side that is spontaneous and awkward and that listens to show tunes. It's all me interacting with each other. And now to close off this Black History Month podcast, I want to end on a quote by novelist George R.R. R. Martin. Never forget what you are. For surely the world will not make it your strength, then it can never be your weakness. Armor yourself in it, and it will never be used to hurt you. There's no need to suppress, but express. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you everyone for tuning in once again to my second podcast of Alternative Talks, the Black History Month edition. Yay! Um, This episode or... Yeah, this episode was very fun to create. It took me back to when I was younger doing the information about historical figures, but also it got me looking deep into my own self and being able to talk about race with my family and conversation that usually doesn't come up. So thank you for everyone tuning in and listening. Hello, hi, I am Selecta Sarah and enjoy your Black History Month, guys. It's a time for celebration, to love one another, put each other up. It's uplifting. It's what we are. It's a culture. Peace, love, bye-bye. Have a great night, day, or whenever you're listening. See you in the next one.